Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 49. Glad you could join us. In today's episode, we are delighted to speak with Professor Joseph Pierce. Professor Pierce is one of the most industrious men of letters I have ever met. He is well known as a prominent writer and speaker, and many Colby students have been blessed by the summer Lord of the Rings course he teaches for us every few years. We are so happy to have him as our keynote speaker in this Colby's very first homeschool convention. Enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, liturgical musician, popcorn and podcast fanatic, and Colby homeschooling mom to four lads and lasses of middle and high school age. And I'm Hope, Bonnie's younger sister and a Colby alumna in a phase of life after being a student, but before becoming a parent. I studied communication theory and philosophy in college, then I went to law school. Now I'm an attorney, an avid home cook, and the fun aunt to Bonnie's kids. And I'm Jordan. After slipping through a thousand cracks, I completed a PhD in history and literature of ancient Christianity at Göttingen University in Germany. Now I teach Greek and Latin at Colby and serve as the Director of Public and Alumni Relations. We are delighted to be visiting with friend of Colby Academy, Joseph Pierce, today. Thanks so much for joining the Colby cast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Joseph is probably known to many among our listeners, but for those unfamiliar, he was the speaker at the Colby commencement a few years ago in Atlanta and has spoken to the Colby faculty at in-service days. He is the series editor of the Ignatius Critical Edition, several of which are used in Colby's high school courses, a senior instructor for Homeschool Connections, a prolific author of books and online articles, a literary scholar, a luminary at homeschool conventions, familiar face there, speaker, playwright, editor of the St. Austin Review, and director of book publishing at the Augustine Institute, which listeners may recognize as affiliated with formed.org and parish catechetical programs. So it's a great privilege and pleasure to have you visiting with us today. Will you tell us a bit about your early encounters with homeschoolers and what led you to craft courses and support materials for them? Well, our son has uh, Down syndrome and autism, so he's special needs. So we've sort of we needed to be homeschooling him by default anyway. So he was born in 2002. So we've been homeschooling him right through, uh, and um, we've uh, we've had a, a daughter stillborn and miscarriages. But we have a, a now a thirteen-year-old daughter. She's also being homeschooled. So we we are homeschooling parents first of all. So um, it is for me it's natural. Uh, the obviously the public school system is unmentionable these days, and even many so-called Catholic schools are neither Catholic nor schools in any true sense of the word. So. Um, our homeschooling is, is, is for most people, I think, is probably the, the, the best option. Now, there are some good schools out there, and I'm not certainly not going to advocate that, that all schools are, 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 are bad. There's, there are some very good Catholic schools out there, but they are in the minority. So just because a school calls itself Catholic does not mean it is Catholic. Um, and so, uh, you know, homeschooling to me is natural because it bringing up our children and education is such a large part or what bringing up our children is, is something which really largely should be done as part of the home and as part of the family. Um, and to sort of offload that very central part of what raising our children is to a third party can be very dangerous, uh, both to the unity of the family, to the, to, to the, uh, to the growing soul. 
of, of our children. Um, and so I think that, that homeschooling, for me, it is the, the, the best way forward for the education of, of, of Catholic children. I wanted to thank you um, for joining us. And um, it's always great talking with you at the times I've seen you at homeschool conferences when I was there representing Colby and, and you were there doing a talk and then um, getting to spend some time with you in Atlanta when you came down to talk at the graduation. And then I, I guess it's two or three, at least two times, but I feel like we've taught Lord of the Rings three times um, together over various summers. And it just gets better and better. Uh, what The feedback I get from students, we don't do it every year. We, may, we want it to be kind of a special occasion. And then we get a big, big group in there, which makes it much more fun. But yeah, well, I, I, I know that I've had a, a really great time when we've done the, uh, the seminars on the Lord of the Rings together. Uh, I think we have a rapport. Obviously, we, as you say, we have a friendship. We've met a few times and we're kindred spirits, not just on the level of the Lord of the Rings, but we are kindred spirits on the Lord of the Rings. And so th there's a bit of a rapport, a bit of a banter. You give me a, a long leash, which I'm very, very grateful for. You, you let me loose. Uh, and, and that's good because it allows me, I think, I hope at least to play to my strengths. Um, in many ways, you're the one that does the uh, the hard labor there. You're the one carrying the cross and you just let me in to, to have fun. So, you know, I, I, I thoroughly enjoy it and, and would be delighted to continue doing them as long as you and your students have the desire. Definitely. As regards my other on, ongoing involvement with Colby over the years, you know, I've spoken at numerous, I mean, dozens of homeschooling conferences. It's a bit difficult for me now to remember who organized what. Obviously, Colby have had nearly all of them anyway. And, you know, I, I at least have a table and, and, and a representative there. I, I remember, obviously, I gave the graduation address a few years back in Atlanta. That was a very joyful day for me. Uh, and what great kids. I mean, um, that that's really the flagship is, is, is the graduating students. I mean, what have you done? You've obviously done a great job. And then many years ago, uh, probably 15 years ago, when even I was fairly young-ish, um, <laughs> um, I, I, I visited Colby's, uh, Colby's uh, main offices in, in Napa, and that was also a joy because uh, obviously I was aware of what Colby were doing, and it's good to actually see Colby Central, so to speak, and, and, and see what they're doing. And I'm so pleased that the, the, you, you are taking up, you've taken up some of the Ignatius Critical Editions because that's, to me, for a high school level, uh, literature education, they are invaluable. In fact, I'd like to see all of them on the curriculum of good homeschooling organizations. I have very fond memories of listening to some lectures that you had recorded. I know 11th grade was one of them, maybe some 10th and, and 12th as well, but I remember our mom and I would drive around and listen to the lectures that Colby distributed that you had done to go with the history and literature programs, and we would just kind of marvel and, and uh, take in all of the wisdom that you had to share, and then to hear like the live classes that you do and these Ignatius Critical editions and things like that. I, that is so enriching. It really brings these texts to life and puts them in context and puts them into the, um, the realm of what you were describing about this very central part of 
growing up. Very excited to visit with you today. <laughs> well, well, it's a, it's a joy for me to be here, and you know, and the, obviously, the two things that are necessary to to be able to do a decent job with teaching uh, uh, any subject is one to know what you're talking about, and hopefully, I do, but also to be really on fire with enthusiasm for it. And 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 I just I love great literature. To me, you know, our Lord conveys the greatest lessons to us in terms of story. You know, God doesn't philosophize. He doesn't he doesn't teach us via abstract concepts. And I'm not saying not opposed to philosophy and I'm, uh, metaphysics and everything else. I mean, faith and reason. <laughs> so predicting anything. But how does God reveal himself to us? He reveals himself to us through story. First of all, by becoming part of the story in his life, death and resurrection um, and the founding of the church and that 2000 years st- long story that's continuing. But also within the story, he tells his most valuable teaches his most valuable lessons through the telling of stories so the parables prodigal son you know that this um uh the good samaritan these these different parables are ways in which he conveys the truth so that's what literature does it actually conveys the deepest theological philosophical moral and historical lessons in the form of story or in great poetry in the form of wonder and again as thomas aquinas teaches us that the way we perceive reality is with first of all with humility with virtue Humility gives us a sense of gratitude. Gratitude um, opens the eyes in wonder. Wonder leads us to contemplation and contemplation dilates the mind and soul into the fullness of reality. So that process of wonder is exactly what the great poets uh, exhibit and and, and communicate. So I'm enthusiastic about this because this is the way you get the truth of Jesus Christ to people. Uh, For me, literature is probably the most accessible way. Uh, of, of getting the deepest truths into into people's minds and hearts because we are we are programmed to uh, to to receive through story and to also receive through wonder. Wow, the progression of that really is so succinct and it makes so much sense. But there's so much richness there to to contemplate that openness. What would you tell homeschooling parents who are approaching these texts with their children, especially if? The parents don't have a classical education themselves. How can we approach this with this openness? Great question, uh, requiring probably a, a several-pronged response. Um, the, 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 the first is, uh, as regards being worried about whether we uh, have what it takes because we're not classically uh, trained and educated. One of my favorite sayings of Chesterton which uh, shocked me when I first heard it, was that he said, if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Uh, And when I first heard that, I was horrified because my father always taught me that if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing well, right? So (laughs) Chester's is normally smart, I thought, but this is not smart, it's dumb, right? Of course, if if something's worth doing, (laughs) it's worth doing well. But what what, what it dawned on me, of course, that it's, it's not either or, it's both and that you can never do anything well unless you're prepared to do it badly first. You know, and I give the example, I'm English, so I like uh, what we call football and what you call soccer, you know. So uh, you take a great uh, soccer player like Lionel Messi, for instance. You know, when he first kicked a soccer ball, when he was about two years old, it was as big as he was and he probably fell flat in his face and made his parents laugh. All right. And he did it badly. 
And he enjoyed doing it badly. And uh, the more he did it badly, the less bad he became. And in the end, he became the best in the world. Now, none of us presumably are going to become the best in the world. But the more that we are willing to do something badly, the better we'll get at it. That's the first thing. So not don't be daunted because we don't think that we're worthy to, to be able to, to do this. Um, and the second thing is that, you know, that the good thing about Colby and, and, and other organizations and the Ignatius Critical Editions is that the tools are given to us. Um, and the, the other thing I, I think about homeschooling, it's an opportunity. I know we're all very busy. It's an opportunity actually for the parents to learn uh, you know, things that they didn't learn during their formal education or to revisit after perhaps many years uh, and to sort of to unite with their kids in the enjoyment of, of, of these texts. Um, and it's a way that, that actually brings parents and children together. Uh, it it, it, it um, solidifies uh, family life. Uh, and at the end of it, you know, we are better educated ourselves. It's an invitation for us also. And obviously we can only do that as far as our time permits. Um, but, you know, insofar as time does permit, what an opportunity, right, to get closer to our own children and give ourselves uh, an, an either an education we never had or a return to an education and to rekindle old loves. Mm-hmm. Our mom has talked about how much she learned. So our mom would get her own copies of the books to read along with me. And that was a really very engaging experience for me as the student to recognize, oh, okay, mom's learning too. I'm reading on a level that is challenging. And I, and like you were saying with the Chesterton quote about doing things badly, I feel like I'm struggling right now because these are these monumental texts and I'm 14, but mom is here with me too. And we're, we're diving into them together and we're trying to figure it out. And it felt like a very, I don't know, I, I think I've talked about in episodes before how it feels like really being invited to the actual table. Like you're not at the kid's table when you're studying with Colby, you're really brought into the conversation. And and my Colby years were before the online live classes. And so it was just our mom and me in a home office with dial up internet in the middle of flyover country. And so now to have all of these resources that are developed, like how much richer that conversation is and again, you know, with, with, with the great works of literature, um, coming back to Cheston's quote about worth doing badly, if, if a work's a great work of literature, um, you can, I've taught books such as, for instance, Brighthead Revisited or The Lord of the Rings, uh, The Man Who Was Thursday by Chesterton. I've taught, not just read them, uh, but taught them multiple times. And every time I reread them to, to, to reteach them, there are new facets of the, of the book that, 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 that hit me that hadn't been noticed before. I mean, the great work of literature is like a living organism. It's sort of like, like something that, that's growing. And, you know, with every, every revisit, there are things there you hadn't noticed before. So the whole thing about worth doing badly, you know, you don't have to feel if you're reading, you know, uh, a challenging work of literature that you don't get it all, right? Just enjoy what you do get. And uh, what you do get is going to be very enriching. Um, and, you know, then just have the experience. Um, I sometimes say that a great work of literature is like walking into a great cathedral. Now, if we walk into St. Peter's uh, Basilica or Chartres Cathedral, 
uh, and it's our first time, we, we, we're going to have our breath taken away. We're going to have a look. It's all going to be all too much. There's going to be so much of it we're not going to see the first time. But if we come back five years later, we go, I didn't notice that before. You spend more time on something you just glanced at. Now you actually have time, maybe spend 10 or 15 minutes looking at it, work of art, statue, whatever. Um, so, so a great work is just the same thing. You're going to miss things. And it doesn't matter. Because you're not going to get everything the first time you read. Enjoy the experience. Get what you do get. Be enriched by it. Be a, be a, be a wealthier, healthier person in consequence. And then go back several years later and enjoy it all over again and be astonished anew by things you hadn't noticed the first time. That's an interesting point about the rereading. I had a conversation with one of our children recently. I was challenged a bit on why why reread it and and my response was like let's talk about the value of rereading things and and noticing things that you didn't catch before it's like seeing a movie for a second time or visiting another place another time or seeing a friend you don't just talk with one person one time and then you know all there is to know about that person so that's the difference between uh pure hard sciences the physical sciences uh and um and the humanities because you know, once you know that two plus two equals four, two plus two is always going to equal four. You know, you don't have to go back and have another look at it, right? Once you know it, you know it. You might use it in a practical sense in your life, right? Um, you know, adding mm-hmm. an extra two spoonfuls to something, right? <laughs> if you need four, um, you know. But but it's, it's there. You've done it. It's you, you've encapsulated that fact. But as again, as Chesterton says, not facts first, truth first. And the paradox is that we have to go through the facts to the truth, as, as Aristotle and, and um, Thomas Aquinas you know, show us that all of our perception of reality goes through our senses. So there is a, an engagement with the facts, now whether that's the facts of a mathematical equation or the facts of the t- what's actually in a text of a, of a work of literature. But the thing about the humanities is they are alive. Same as you say, you, know, you wouldn't say I don't need to meet that person again because I met them once, right? Because there's so much about that person that you don't know and that one meeting with them is not going to have uh, allow you to actually know them on the on a deeper level. So you meet them again, you know them a bit more, bit more deeply because they're alive, right? There's something in them which is not going to be pinned down. There's a truth. And the thing about truth as opposed to fact, facts are physical, truth is metaphysical. Truth contains, thing, contains things such as love and beauty, truth, goodness. Um, and those things can't be quantified. They can't be measured. They can't be put in a cup and, and pinned down. So that means you have to go back to them to see them again. Uh, and, and even if you see the same thing you saw last time, you're not going to see it probably in exactly the same way. True. That I had that experience rereading Jane Eyre after many years. I saw so many different things to it and related to it so differently at that point in my life than I had the, when I had read it. Yeah, you have grown in some sense as a person in 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 the uh, in the time that elapses from one reading to the next reading, and you're going to be more able to to get things from a, a work when you are a more mature reader than when you're a younger reader. Where we are is obviously going to impact um, uh, the way that we experience a text because some some texts require a different degree of maturity than others. And let me say something as well is I've I've obviously taught uh, homeschool, not just my own children, but Colby, Homeschool Connections and what have you. Um, 
but I've, I've taught for many years at college level. Uh, and my experience uh, has been almost universally that those kids that have been homeschooled do much better at college than those that haven't, even those that go to so-called good, good Catholic schools. You know, I, I, I give you, I mean, honestly, the last few years I taught at Ave Maria, this is a story I tell, and it's true. First semester freshman, my first day of classes, right, there's 30, 30 in the class, front row, just looking at them, basically all Catholic homeschool kids. Um, they're sitting in the front row because they got there early and they're keen and eager and they've already read a lot of the texts we're going to be doing, so they're revisiting them. They already know about them. Hopefully at college level you're taking it a bit deeper for them so they're not, they're not getting bored, but, they, but they're going to they're excel. And that front row, we're, we're basically going to get almost invariably A's. You know, and it's, this, this is a pattern. You, just, you saw it happening year after year. Second row, good Catholic kids from good Catholic families that went to good Catholic schools. Yet they're dutiful, responsible, you know, good kids. They're going to get beats. Third row, uh, kids that basically were raised Catholic, but are somewhat indifferent about it, went to somewhat indifferent schools, Catholic or otherwise, and they'll get by and um, probably with a B minus or a C. And then row four and row five were athletes who <laughs> who weren't Catholics, didn't care about religion, didn't care about the humanities, just were forced to be in class because that's the only way they can play sports um, and were not interested and would be many of them lucky to scrape a pass and get these or Fs. Um, and this pattern just it was year after year after year. So, uh, you know, there, there are a few exceptions. I remember one homeschool student who had never written a paper. So I don't know what happened there. Um, so that first paper that they got, uh, you know, at, at college level, first semester freshman, they panicked. You know, how do I write a paper? But that was I mean, that was the exception. <laughs> you know, generally speaking, those those students have been homeschooled were, were well ready for the college experience. We have been asking folks over the course of this season if they were homeschooled, how their college experience was. And some of our guests we who have been instructors of, of homeschool students and others at the university level, the college level, what that's been like from their end as well. So that that's good to hear. That seems to be a pretty common theme we hear that homeschoolers are well prepared for studies on the college level. That's good. Colby has seen incredible growth this year due to a variety of factors. And so for those who have been emergency homeschoolers, as I call them, now considering sticking with homeschooling rather than returning to their previous school, as well as the new-ish, reluctant or would-be homeschoolers, and any other curious folk listening in, how might you explain the benefits of Catholic classical education to their children and society? Well, the key thing is that the humanities teach us about humanity. Um, and we, we do not become fully human unless we know what it is to be fully human. So in, in, in our modern education system, which is all about getting a job and earning money and being a good producer consumer, in other words, a good cog in the economic machine, um, you, you have people that are stunted in their growth as human persons, which means they can't form relationships, that they can't communicate, which means ironically, they're not actually any good at the jobs they've been trained for. Um, so 
to, to, to actually have an education in the humanities is to become more fully human, to become more humane. Uh, it allows you to actually get on well with other people. It allows you to communicate to other people. It makes you actually not just someone who's going to be much happier because you're not going to be frustrated by your lack of understanding of what's happening around you. Um, but also you're going to get on better in the world, including in work, in jobs. So it's, 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 it's a lose-lose to actually do a, you know, a utilitarian, you know, get yourself a job education because you're, you're going to be stunted as a human person. Uh, insofar as you're stunted as a human person, you're not going to do your job well. And most good employers know that. Which is why you know that they're, they're they're looking for someone that can communicate. So in in the job interview, you know how do you express yourself? What sort of vocabulary do you have? Have what you know? What sort of understanding do you have of what it is to be a human person? Who is your customer? Right? Is your customer just the name, or just you know, a, a line on the on 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 the on the profit loss ledger? Or is your customer a human person needs to be treated the dignity the human person uh, demands? You know, that's exactly the sort of approach that gets you the job. So it, 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 on all levels, uh, an education in the classical humanities um, is a win-win. Yeah, I love that you make that connection that humanities is, is about the human person because that's so much of what's lost today. Uh, you know, the whole, the, the attack against uh the attack of, against everything that, feel, that that we would view as right is really an attack against humanity it's, and, and the person. And I, I wanted to ask you this just from, I was in a conversation the other day and, and someone brought in Lord of the Rings and the idea of that there's, we were talking about violence and a lot of the violence in Lord of the Rings, it's, it's like it's all directed towards things that are deformed, towards the the dehumanized almost characters that that Tolkien was able to create and um so then in a way it's it's as though violence is more uh justifiable something like that i can't imagine reading the stories and and taking the side of of the orcs or whatever and and standing up for them it's as though like at, he he assumed that we all as as humans knew who was good and who was bad and on what side you would be on and a lot of education i think is 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 it's like it's all muddled so much now that that some of it is is directing people towards towards this this idea of which you know of what is human what it means to be human and and i just wonder does that does that still play a role? I mean, for children and at what and at what level is are are they confused? What level can they be confused? Uh, what age even? Because um, it seems like all children that might read Lord of the Rings would know who was good and who was bad. But at some point, maybe they would get a professor that could convince them otherwise <laughs> that that, uh, you know, that the the wrong guys, as we would say, were the the good guys or whatever. Um, is there a level in there that, that people get confused and what causes it? Well, I think first of all, that children uh, are um, much more adept and adroit at learning than we are. Um, but the one aspect of that is their malleability, that they, because they, they, they have the ability to learn. That, no, that, that's you know, it's well documented that you, a, a child can grow up 
and become bilingual just by having two languages spoken around. There's no effort whatsoever because that's the way the brain is wired when people are, are young. But on the other hand, they have no life experience, which means that they they, they succumb to to propaganda. And the, the the big war we have at the moment is between engaging with reality, which is that which is outside yourself, and self-deification, narcissism. And the thing about narcissism, and Gollum, by the way, in The Lord of the Rings is the perfect example of what happens to the soul when you allow yourself to become narcissistic, um, is that you don't grow because the only way you can grow is to engage with reality. And reality is that something outside of yourself, not inside of yourself. You've got, you know, you've got to put things in there to do things with. It's like food, right? You're going to starve. So, you know, so you have to engage with what's out there with objective reality in order to actually become fully human. So you have to have a, an understanding of reality, which is based upon objectivity and not subjectivity. That if, if you are the only thing that matters, you are going to approach reality with uh, pride. And the consequence of pride is prejudice. Um, uh, so, again, uh, earlier we spoke about uh, the way that Thomas Aquinas shows us how we perceive reality. Right. Um, the, 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 the virtue of humility. Um, uh, gives us a sense of gratitude. It's the, the, the gratitude opens the eyes in wonder. Wonder uh, uh, moves us to contemplation, and contemplation leads to that dilatatio, that dilation, that opening of the mind and the soul into the fullness of reality. Now, take that first component away, right? What is the definition of the absence of humility? Pride, right? Sin, evil has no uh, objective being. It's the absence of good. So the perfect definition of pride is the absence of humility. You take humility away and you have no sense of gratitude. If you have no sense of gratitude, your eyes are closed to wonder. If your eyes are closed to wonder, you will not be moved to contemplation. And instead of your mind opening up into the fullness of reality, it will shrink and shrivel. It will invent a verb, golemize us. We will become shriveled, shrunken, pathetic husks of who we're called to be. And that is the consequence of narcissism. When we teach uh, children to be proud, that it's all about you and doing you what you want to do, you're actually imprisoning them within the shrunken cell in which you've condemned them, which gets smaller and smaller, the more proud they become. And let me give you an example of what happened actually on a plane journey that I was on fairly recently. There was a, a young man, probably in his 20s, early 20s, maybe even late teens. Uh, when you get to my age, he'd be under 40 as a kid. Um, <laughs> but he was a young person. Uh, and the, the, the flight was, there's a mechanical problem on the plane and we weren't going to get there on time. And everybody had to face the whole thing. And this person had a complete meltdown because he's not, you know, a basically a temper tantrum. And the most horrific thing that he said, Saying, you know, first he said, why did this happen? To, why did this have to happen to me? And he said, why couldn't happen to somebody else? You know, and I thought, wow, that person has been so destroyed by being told it's all about pride and narcissism that there's no vestige of love for the other at all there now. It's all about me. Why can't this happen to somebody else? Mm. Scare me, in fact. Scare me. Yes. And how how do you then engage with that? And is that is that the moment when you can really, or is it more the movement of of grace as you were speaking about before? How <laughs> that's probably a, a whole different 
um, topic to get into on some other occasion. Well, I mean, let, let me show you how I would connect that young man who obviously had never read uh, The Odyssey um, by Homer, um, is that at the beginning of, at the, beginning of the Odyssey, uh, God, father of the gods, Zeus, says that men blame us for suffering when it's actually it's their own recklessness which causes sorrow beyond that which is given right and the real the real sting in the tail which the odyssey really is is a meditation upon is okay we can all see fairly easily that if you're if you do something really stupid you're going to pay the consequences of it what makes it a bit deeper is the innocent people suffer because of your stupidity too that's but then the deepest aspect of it what about natural causes what about an earthquake or a tornado or cancer right um what about that which is given so uh and the whole of the odyssey is you know how do we learn to understand that some suffering is a gift that allows us actually to grow in wisdom and virtue? And perfectly, perfect example with that young man on the plane, right, that he needed to experience that sort of suffering to force him to realize that he's not God. Right. He does, he's not in complete control of what's going on around him. There are things beyond his control. How is he going to cope with the fact that in the real world he's actually small uh, and there are things that are more powerful than him? And he has to come to terms with that. So uh, that experience of suffering was a gift to him. He wouldn't have seen it that way at the time, of course. But that's what it was. Yep. So before we became a Colby family, our children were in a, a brick and mortar Catholic school and Many times I would have conversations with parents about the idea of the children being in a bubble, being put in a bubble in this Catholic school, and and that some of them, that's why they put them there. Others of us, that's not why we had them there. It was more of this um, opportunity for them to grow up in in an environment that would in, better equip them to engage with the real world, so to speak, and outside the bubble, because we knew that the, that bubble was not permanent, anything like that. I think that the humanities studies in this classical education, we recognize that they're not in this bubble. They're not going to be in this stage forever, and they're going to be better equipped that way to engage yeah, with reality. The key, the key thing is, when we let's talk about bubbles, right? The smallest bubble that, that our children can be raised in is the bubble that's called the zeitgeist, right? The spirit of the age. Uh, in uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, book the pilgrim's regress the everyman character john is imprisoned by a monster called the spirit of the age um and and c.s lewis says if if you know one thing you can say about fashion is that uh, fashions are always coming and going but mostly going so if someone is completely in the 1970s the spirit of the 1970s was a bubble the spirit of the 1960s was a bubble by the 1980s, the spirit of the 60s was, you know, that you get, it was just weird for aging hippies, right? So if you if you want to raise your children in a bubble, raise them in accordance with what the latest fashion is, right? In 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 the spirit of the age, Chesterton said on the other on the other hand that the Catholic Church is the one continuous institution that's been thinking about thinking for 2,000 years, right? That's not a bubble. And he also said that tradition is uh, the extension of democracy through time. It's the en uh, enfranchisement of the unborn. Uh, 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 so it's the proxy of the dead and the enfranchisement of the unborn. 
Um, so that's not a bubble, right? To basically to raise our children as part of 3,000 years of collective human experience, which is what which is what Western civilization is, is to ensure that they're not living in the bubble. It's ensuring that they will go through life not being trapped in that bubble. Mm-hmm. If if you want to be able to see beyond whatever happens to be fashionable in terms of ideology, for instance, politics, uh, in the culture, now you study history, right? Because basically the whole of human history is a struggle between Homo viator, pilgrim man, man on the journey, and Homo superbus, proud man, man who refuses the journey. And that battle takes place in each of our individual hearts, as Solzhenitsyn said. The battle between good and evil takes place in each individual heart. But it takes place in each individual heart and each individual generation from the beginning of time. So you can actually see the same political struggles between narcissism, between Homo superbus and Homo viator throughout the every single uh, century since the time of Christ. Uh, you usually see, by the way, that the homo viator, the people that are trying to become saints, who are trying to live virtuously, are outnumbered. They tend not to have a great, great deal of political power. Most of the political power is normally in the hands of homo superbus, you know, the, the people that want power. As Tolkien said, by the way, the problem, the problem uh, with politics is that the people that want power are exactly the people who don't want to have it. Um, <laughs> so by definition, right, that, that we can be ruled by people that are that are interested in having power. Um, and those that are not interested in having power would be much better to be, for, to be ruling over us, but they don't want to. So, um, so that the whole of history, right, that the, the saints are outnumbered by the sinners. Um, the wicked are normally in the corridors of power. Um, the reason so many saints are martyrs, witnesses. Is because to witness to the truth is, as Christ says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Um, so we, we shouldn't be sort of thinking, oh, without, unless, unless Catholics are 51 percent of the population can win the election. Therefore, we've lost. Sorry. I mean, the Catholics have never been 51 percent of the population in terms of genuine believers. Look at Dante's Divine Comedy. Look at uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. The majority of people might pay lip service, but in reality, they're doing their own thing. Speaking of homo viator, I wanted to um, mention any to any listeners one of my favorite books, and and especially one of my favorites of yours is is your race with the devil. So if you haven't read that, somebody you should check that out. It, it's a perfect example of what we're talking about, and I, I'm sure I hope the listeners get the sense. And this is why I love talking and 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 teaching with Professor Pierce so much is because. It gives you the sense of life. It gives you the sense that of inspiration because you're in contact with somebody who is doing this exact thing, a homo viator, somebody who's on the way. And I wanted to ask you, um, I wanted to ask you, Joseph, if um, just about your routine, because you 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 write so much and yet you're speaking, you're you're engaged in a lot of different things. So on a non on a non-interview, non-speaking day. Um, what, what would you, what would you do? How would you spend that day? Oh, lounging on the beach. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> uh, well, every day is, is, uh, is different. So most days there's some sort of interview, uh, some sort of editing work, uh, and, and most days also time for writing. Very occasionally I'm able to set a whole day aside just for writing. The key thing is that I'm very diligent 
and uh, uh, um, disciplined in uh, making sure that I'm in my office um, basically from 8 a.m. until dinner. Um, and that's seven-ish. Uh, so that's 11 hours. I will try to go to the gym sometime during that 11 hours um, to keep myself. I, 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 you know, for, for many years, I, I tried what, what I call a healthy trinity, they, to make time uh, every day for, for spiritual exercise, for intellectual exercise, and for physical exercise, right? Um, now, my, my work takes care of the intellectual exercise. I don't have to find time for it because that just happens to me. Um, but I do try to find time every day to make sure I, I've got time for spiritual exercise, for prayer, and time for physical exercise. And it doesn't always work out. Uh, you know, life gets in the way. But but at least if you if you if you have that um, idea of what a fully rounded working day is, um, then you could be working towards it. And then you could be aware that if it's being stunted, that it's not an equilateral triangle at the moment, right? That basically the the, the, the spiritual side is being squeezed out or the physical side is being squeezed out. Then you have to address it. So just to keep things in balance. This idea of the body, mind, and soul. I like hearing you describe it as this trinity of, of things that you should pay attention to each day, because I think I've, I've mentioned before, I can get really stuck in the intellectual side of things. And so having spiritual and the physical anchors makes a lot of sense. Another thing you have to be very careful of as well is to not allow ourselves to be distracted to death. Uh, because in, in our uh, uh, present culture, we all have, there's so what I call gadgets, not gadgets, but gadgets. You know, most of us are actually chained by way of a, a wire of some sort to our gadgets. And we spend most of, yeah, you're trying to hide it. That's all right. <laughs> um, no, that we, that, uh, you know, that we, um, that, that we have to find time for silence. Um, and so one thing we shouldn't be doing when we, when we find that we're between things is to find something to distract us. So in between things, you're in a glorious, silent moment in your life. This is perfect for prayer, perfect for recreational reading, right? Rather than reading for work, reading for whatever you, you need to be doing, just reading something that you'd like to read, that, because it would be good for you to read it, but not because there's any, because you've got to teach a class on it or or what have you, right? Or got to write on it. Um, so to, to look for the, to, to actually long for, to have a, a desire for silence and don't try to fill silence up by treating it as a vacuum that you have to fill with with, with something which is normally just a, a, a distraction particularly in our day and age and we're all, we're all surrounded by gadgets we spend much more time with our gadgets than we do with our god that's the reality i think that's one way i have grown a little bit this year is settling in a little bit more to the silence and, and hope has referenced before the idea of silence and music and being a, an integral part of music. So everything you want to look at that the, 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 the I would say full stop, you'd say period at the end of the sentence, the space between words. All right. Uh, you know, the, the, there is no music without silence because uh, you'd just be white noise. All right. <laughs> there, there, there is no written word without the space between the words. You have to you know, pause between the two to distinguish one from another right, in order to make sense of things. So that silence is absolutely necessary and essential and we should rejoice in it. And the actual fact, if we're able to get more of it, we should be aiming to do so. There's one thing we can show about mo the modern life. It's not that we, we, we are suffering from too much silence. That's for sure. 
So what are you up to these days? Writing, working projects? What have you got going? Well, I've just delivered a manuscript about six weeks ago to Ignatius Press. The title I've given to it is um, uh, Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England. And it's basically a history, a history of Catholic England from the first century to the 21st century. Um, I'm very pleased with it. And they they appear to be also. So um, that probably won't come out to the spring. Ignatius takes his time. The books are always very good, though. Um, so at the moment, up to a point, I'm 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 between books. I've just I've just um, consolidated some longer essays I've written on on, on great books. And I've just so I'm just going to have another manuscript ready imminently, probably next week, uh, which I've given a, to which I've given the title Great Books, um, Getting to Know the Classics. Um, and they're basically it's about 14, 5000 or so word uh, essays on various great books, including, by the way, The Man Who Was Thursday. Um, so uh, so that's another one I've got in the bag. But the next book I'm going to start writing, I'm under contract to write, uh, a book to which I've given the title, The Good, The Bad, and The Beautiful, A History of Three Dimensions. And it's gonna be one chapter for each of the 20 centuries since Christ, looking at the, what, are, what are the three fabrics with which history is woven, the good, Homo uh, Viator, people trying to become saints by the grace of God. Uh, the bad, Homo Superbus, and the beautiful, Anthropos, he who looks up in wonder. So basically, it's going to be looking at the history of the church and the saints. It's going to be looking at wickedness in society and in the church in every every single century. And, and then also look at the great works of art, beauty, um, music, architecture, um, literature, etc. Um, and, and the whole point of it is to show that we're living in um, what the Anglo-Saxons would call a weird woven web. In other words, weird being providence and the providence has some sort of web where everything we do within the web impacts everything else on the web. None of us can do anything without impacting others. And so the whole of history, if you like, is this weird woven web with three, three strands. You know, uh, those are trying to become saints, those who are refusing to become saints, and the great works of creative beauty, because we made the image of God, our imagination can, can raise up. So, and then that's important because we live in a very progressive age, in inverted commas, where you you think things are progressing to some now if you like it a golden age in the future if you don't like it the golden age was in the past but there's, there's this pro progressive thing natural fact no it's the long defeat as Tolkien would say right it's, it's the reason it's the long defeat is because that dark strand right the bad is always in power for the most part um, so it's always winning but it never wins. And there's always in every single generation what, again, Tolkien calls occasional glimpses of final victory, which is heaven. The final victory is heaven. The final victory is when we die. I'm older than you, so I'm closer to the finishing line, probably. Deo gracias. Um, you know, so, so, you know, so that's, uh, that's what we have to worry about. The end of the world is when we die. Um, and so to understand history in terms of, of, of this uh, dance, if you like, right? The divine dance, divine comedy, um, where ultimately all being played out in God's omnipresence. There's no past, no future to God. This is all being played out in his presence. There's nothing to worry about. Okay. We have lots to look forward to, it sounds like. 
we have mentioned before the list of a thousand great books to read. We've posted that before in relation to some other episodes we've aired. We're going to add to it your whatever Catholic should know about literature. You have a list in the back of that one, and you've you've touched on some of it in the conversation today. So we'll be sure to add that to our list. And we have several links to post in our show notes, including one to your website, jpierce.co, not com, co, co, and some articles you've written and other references. Um, I would just ask that all of your Colby people out there, check out my website, jpierce.co, discover what I'm doing. Certainly, yes. I just really appreciate you taking the time to come on our podcast and reconnect with some of the Colby people. I'm sure they'll be glad to hear from you. But you're right. And we, when we first met, I was in, in Germany for all those years. And so we had, of course, I'm American, but being there and then kind of being connected with the Catholic world inside America through my work. And then you also being not from America, but being in America and connected to that world. It's been nice to to talk with you. I think I've found a kindred spirit with you in, in that way, especially because it felt like a little bit of outsiders, maybe in a way. Yeah, I mean, there, there is, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, it's been said, as you know, I, I, I can't remember if it was George Bernard Shaw, maybe, that famously said that the British and Americans are two nations divided by a common language. Um, but certainly there, there, there's an old world sensibility and a new world sensibility. There's, and and we don't have time to talk about this any length now, It'll be a great topic of conversation at some point. Um, and of course, that I've got an old world sensibility that's, that's becoming uh, acclimatized, um, as I would say, acclimated, as you would say, I'm bilingual now. Um, so, you know, I'm an old world sensibility that's becoming uh, acclimatized to, to the new world. And you were the other way around, right? You're on, you have a new world sensibility that is becoming uh, acclimatized to the old world with your experience in Germany. And, and, and what it does allow you to do is to see both worlds from the outside and from the inside. Um, before I came to America, I had a view of America, which is based upon ignorance, based upon, you know, Hollywood, MTV and, 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 and the media. Right. Well, that's not the full or the true America. And you have to come here and see it from the inside to understand. And the same would be true of Germany. and The same would be true of England. It's fun to hear you guys. Reminisce. Well, it's been, it's been it's been a joy and a pleasure as always. What a highlight this has been. Thank you so much for taking this time with us and visiting with us. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much, Joseph. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Keep up the great work you're all doing there. Or, um, or I should say in South Carolina language, South Carolinese. Keep up the good work y'all doing um, with Colby Academy because you're obviously you're doing some very important work. So keep, keep, keep on keeping on. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam. 